Sisters Perspectives is a forum where individuals come to express their viewpoint, their stance, their angle on issues relative to topics of concern to the community globally. Each week, our co-host and featured guests will present a perspective through a unique lens. The Sisters Perspective gives the world a frame of reference, an ear, a voice on politics, public policy, advocacy, finance, economics, health. The Sisters Perspective is a roundtable on hot topics with dialogue on issues in the news. It's a way of looking at controversial subjects, approaches, and outlooks. So come check us out and give us your perspective. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sisters Perspective, where we're giving the world a voice. I am Lyra Lane White, executive producer, and today we are both pleased and excited to have two dynamic and unique experts in the realm of geography, and uh, both of whom have redefined, redefining perspectives on food and culture. First, she is an assistant professor of environmental studies, currently at St. Mary's College in Maryland, with a specific interest on how multiple intersecting forms of oppression impact the human environment. In addition to justice, nature, policy, and urban geography, she has done extensive research into the social movement strategies that communities engage to create positive change. Introducing to our dialogue, Dr. Ellen Cole, and right next to her, Dr. Priscilla McKetchen is an assistant professor of geography and Pan-African studies at the University of Louisville. Her primary research focus was on the intersection of agriculture and food, race, identity formation, and religion. So in addition to her research interests, they include uh, black geography, sustainable agriculture, spirituality, and religion, and together they are two serious sisters here today to give their perspectives. So thank you both for being a part of this dialogue on food and culture. I'm excited about the work you are both doing as advocates, and I am inspired by your activism. So before we jump into our dialogue, you each have done some great things to alter the landscape of food and culture from an environmental justice perspective. And this occasion invites each of you to share your latest endeavors. Uh, Dr. McKetchen, why don't we start with you? Sure. So the first thing um, I wanted to say, uh, thank you for having us. I am actually an assistant professor at University of Kentucky. I moved less than six months ago. Um, And so I'm in the Department of Geography at University of Kentucky, but it's right down the road, so it's close. (laughs) Okay. Um, So I've been working at the intersection of food, race, um, culture, but also religion and spirituality for the past um, eight or so years. A lot of my work has been with uh, Black faith-based food programs in the South, so mainly in Georgia in Georgia and South Carolina. Um, I've looked at how they've used um, food, whether it be emergency food or sustainable agriculture, um, to define themselves racially, uh, but also spatially. I purposefully, um, during my PhD field work, picked three very different organizations, and so they're all um, majority Black, but as everyone knows, um, all Black people don't have the same spiritual um, or religious leaning, and so I wanted to pick organizations that were quite distinct. 
Um, one is a, a black Protestant church, which had an emergency food program, um, and two are black nationalist religions, um, and again, both in Georgia and South Carolina, um, and all have um, sprawling land. And again, they use food, whether it be emergency food or organic food, um, to really define a strong black urban, um, and in some cases, a rural community. More recently, um, I've moved to work on this really archival work, looking back. Uh, really, the reason that I chose to do that work is because in doing the ethnographic field work at my organizations, um, I found that um, a lot of people um, wanted to know the history, and they had a lot of history, but there weren't a lot of people talking about um, how African Americans have always been involved um, in food and agriculture. And so I completed a project, an archival project on Fannie Lou Hamer's Freedom Farms, mm-hmm. um, where I looked at the intersection of the body, um, the field, and also the southern landscape um, with how she did her food justice activism during the Black Power Movement. Um, And now I'm working um, on a project with the National Council of Negro Women, uh, looking at their 1960s hunger campaign and really how they're defining hunger um, in a very interesting way on a national level, but in a very radical way um, on a local level. And so those are some of the things that I've worked on at this intersection of food, race, uh, religion, and space. Awesome. 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 Dr. Cole, why don't you grace us with your with your uh, with, with your highlights? And I, I hope I got your uh, your position correct. Yes, you did. You got my my position correct. And uh, <laughs> I want to echo uh, Priscilla and just thanking you for this opportunity to think and talk about these ideas um, oh, in a really dynamic way. Um, So I come to food and culture in a more tangential way. Um, I am really interested. So my research has looked at um, governance, how how we use policy to both create uh, and maintain spaces of persistent injustice. And so I look at how urban policies and environmental policies are designed in such a way that certain people... Uh, around accesses of race and class and gender often have access to positive environmental amenities while people, um, there's other groups that don't have access to those amenities and and bear the brunt of the the negative amenities in our society. And so for my work, I worked with a group of amazing women in Gainesville, Georgia with the Newtown Florist Club, particularly Miss Faye Bush and Miss Rose Johnson, who had been doing a lot of work, so uh, started a social club in the 1950s, and this group since the 1950s had been working to create uh, change in their predominantly African-American community in Gainesville. And over the years, they'd been trying all sorts of techniques and different social movement strategies to create the change they wanted to see in their community, and were just over and over again pushed back by structural systematic racism in their community. And so I worked with them um, and was really interested in their interactions between both the activists' interactions with themselves, their interactions with local government, and their interactions with the federal government through the EPA, and trying to think through how different people and different systems of oppression and different axes of identity get played out in these interactions, just different systems of, of governance. Um, and I'm also was really interested in how the women use storytelling as a way to make sense of these governmental systems and how these governmental systems are, uh, you know, creating 
barriers for them to achieve their goals. Uh, And also, though, how they use storytelling as a way to both contest the environmental harms that are happening in their area, but also claim their areas as more than just a forgotten space, but as a space that's important to them and their community. Uh, And more recently, I have been... um, looking more into the role of the Environmental Protection Agency under the Trump administration and how the Trump administration, what the Trump administration is doing to dismantle the regulatory systems that are designed to protect people and really asking, um, and I'm going to start to talk to environmental justice activists and see how they see this moment um, of deregulation and is it actually an opportunity to create systems that will actually protect them. Um, And with a colleague, Jamie Winta, at the University of Texas, I'm also looking at there's a new movement called the Rights of Nature, which is giving uh, legal status to rivers and trees and other parts of nature. And on the surface, it seems like a kind of that we first got interested in the projects. It felt very, you know, maybe this is a good way to protect environmental spaces. But the more we've looked into it, it just seems to be another opportunity to reproduce this unequal, um, the unequal spaces that uh, exist in um, the unequal spaces that that are already existing in in our society. Mm-hmm. So those are the things that I'm I've been thinking about recently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow! Now these things, um, and, and you know, most recently, you know, we we uh, we. We were able to be face to face up in Washington D.C. at the uh, geographers' conference, and that experience and listening to the two of you uh, participate on um, in the, the, the couple of two ch- panels that uh, I witnessed really have opened my eyes, uh, opened my mind to a, a whole nother realm of uh, understanding social justice and and its impact on culture. Um, I have done a, a lot of uh, research on uh, on uh, in the area of, of social social justice and ap- uh, and activism, and but from a different angle. And so my my listeners, the if you if you look at the the demographic of my listeners, they are um, they are they they will they they will hear what the two of you are saying um, with a different ear. And so, and that ear may, may be somewhat oblivious to the role that certain factors play in, in food and culture. Um, so I know earlier in one of, one of your, you did a joint project earlier and you introduced the concept of positionality Um. I just want to start out. I mean, I have a couple of questions that I think my listeners will, that will kind of pique my listeners uh, interest and, and will actually open their minds uh, so that they can see, you know, really uh, engage your perspective on things. Could you, for the sake of my listeners, define either one of you, define that concept of positionality uh, relative to food and culture? So um, this is Priscilla. I can start defining it and then Ellen, like we always do, can feed off of one another. Um, So positionality is really looking at the subjectivities that we bring to our research. And so 
these subjectivities can be uh, based on many different facets of identity, like race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, class, um, and thinking from an intersectional perspective, um, how these different subjectivities work together mm-hmm. uh, to mean that we bo- we all bring something different to our research. And so with positionality, um, we really kind of fight against this idea that research is objective. And we think that um, all people, um, based on not just um, the bodies that um, they, not just who they embody, but also how people perceive them, uh, bring something different to our research. And so I guess one way to kind of operationalize it is that in thinking about me and Ellen, um, I'm a black woman, she's a white woman. Mm -hmm. Um, If we were to go into the same setting and ask the same questions, um, people would respond different to us based on um, how they perceive us. So that's a part of what positionality is. Right, right. Thank you, Ellen. Yeah, and I I think just to add add that it's, it's, I mean, I think maybe this is because we're both geographers and we think spatially, but it's not just about who we are and how people perceive us, but it's also how our, who we are changes depending on what space we're in. And so, I mean, I could, I could list out, you know, my, my list of, of, you know, my different axes of difference, but I think the way we think about personality is also how it impacts how we live our lives. So we talk about a lot about our lived experiences. And so, you know, and that has a, um, it has a dynamic of power and it has a dynamic of relationships and it has, and it's, it's fluid. And so that list of, you know, who I am, you know, white middle-class woman doesn't encompass my full self, but as I live my life, my positionality does kind of fluidly impact it. And so an example I always use with my students is that, you know, in the classroom, I have all the power. You know, I'm the one that's in charge, I'm in power, and that's how the room is set up, and that's, they've given me that power, and we talk about power as a relationship, not as a thing, but then the second I step out, if I maybe have to go into, you know, the dean's office, then that power dynamic and my positionality is completely shifted, and I'm no longer the one holding the power, instead I'm the one that is giving the power to the dean because of those power relationships, and so positionality in both our lives, but also within our research, has that relational aspect, has that power aspect, and has a really important spatial aspect that's continually changing. And so a lot of people try to think about positionality as a very fixed identity, Mm -hmm. but the way that Priscilla and I think about it and talk about it, it's a much more fluid part of who we are that Mm -hmm. is continually changing depending on who we're interacting with and where. Absolutely, absolutely. In the church, we talk a lot about uh, forming our faith. And one of the things that um, it, as, as clergy, we try to teach people is that that level of faith and how you see faith, how you engage, whoever your supreme being may be will change throughout life. It will. It may change by the minute, depending on what your what your, um, you know, depending on what your, your, your situation is or whatever crisis you're going, if it's a crisis, it may, may not even be a crisis, but your position it's, it's, I'm, I'm paralleling that, um, this, this definition of positionality with, um, a, a person's relationship when we talk about spirituality and that relationship a person may have with God is is not it's not just a fixed relationship. It's not something that was created uh, in Sunday school when you were a kid 
And then it's the same when you go into adulthood. It, it is going to change. And so that's a very interesting as you uh, as you uh, gave, especially uh, Dr. Cole, as you gave your definition, I was able to um, make that analogy. Um, and so with that, uh, what are some we talk about uh, some of the factors that intersect on um, we're in, you know, that intersect on our perceptions of, of who we are in different spaces. What can you, either one of you, um, define or identify some of the factors that would um, that come into play um, in with respect to uh, food and culture? Like uh, you've mentioned some so far, but. I guess I'm looking for something, for, you know, for this, just so that so that my listeners can really understand how uh, how uh, these different these different factors intersect. Can you give some examples of some factors and and how they intersect with food and culture? <laughs> okay, was this, was the question a little too deep? I don't know. No, I think we're just both taking a second to, um, to think. think a little about yeah. it. Yeah, because I think, um, you know, I, I, my listeners, I know my perception of, 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 um, of, of justice or, or in, especially environmental justice coming from the perspective of, uh, I, I did most of my work on the effects of gentrification and the and the level of dislocation and I'm looking at these different factors that come into play in that realm but I guess my engagement with you guys um has opened my mind to some other factors that I wasn't really taking into effect I wasn't really taking into consideration um when we talk about uh changes in our environment and space and and the importance thereof um so I didn't. I don't mean to throw a monkey wrench in your thinking, but uh, you know, it's just a, it's a whole nother round. So it, you know, um. I mean, so I guess um, I can start uh, and think about some of them, um, and especially kind of relating back to your uh, previous question about positionality. Okay. Um, one of the things that um, I always say with my research on food and how I experience. Um, issues of food justice is that I've never been hungry. And so the reason that um, I always say that I've never been hungry is because in terms of identity and positionality, I think that that's important to understand with like what we bring to the table and how we understand um, other people's experiences. Um, And so that's, I guess, one example um, that I think of. But, you know, uh, Again, you know, for for the group of people that that will be listening to this podcast, um, they are thinking of when, especially when they think about food and culture in the African American culture, food has a, a place where you know, like everything happens, um, you know, over food. You know, everything we do has, you know, you know, if we are celebrating something, that's food. If we're even if we when we go to funerals. We're, you know, that's food. Um, if we go out to eat, that's food. So food is just like a major piece of our culture that I don't think, you know, as a culture that we understand the impact of what we're learning 
as through our experience through through food. For me, thinking about food and thinking about kind of some of the questions you're asking, a lot of what you know Priscilla and I do both in our individual research and our thinking together is to really challenge each other and ourselves and our students and whoever we're really talking to is to think about more than just the superficial experience of sharing food or, you know, feeding. And I think, you know, Priscilla's example of never being hungry, also acknowledging what we have and have an experience to really try to get ourselves uh, and, you know, whoever we're engaged with to think about the complexity of, of all these processes. So, Right. You know, I have in a was in a class at a guest lecture and he asked everybody to go around and, and state what their favorite food was. And you know, you can have people can have that, but what was evident quickly is it wasn't just my favorite food is, but there's a story behind it and there's a history. And if you push people to think about those histories and those relationships, then it it tells us much deeper story. Mm-hmm. And um, around you know food and culture, it often tells stories about oppression. It tells stories about hunger. It tells stories about access to resources. And no matter what group you come from in your history, you're coming from looking at those histories and thinking about you know how you experience food and what you define as as different types of food is an important way to to really engage with with the comp. So it's a it's a way to kind of get at because everybody experiences food to some of the complex ideas around you know systems of oppression and you know racism not as an individual experience but racism as a systemic experience right right there's a way to to bring people to that space and there's a lot of really great examples of people who are doing that through restaurant cooking and through kind of organizing um different uh, kind of ways of bringing together people together around food. And so I think that there's a lot of people that are, are doing this work and using that space of the table. And, you know, we talk a lot about this, the space of the kitchen table as a way to facilitate conversations around things that, you know, we might not be talking about if you aren't explicitly making space for these conversations to happen. Mm-hmm. What about in communities where, um, where food, where there's food insecurity. And by that, I mean, uh, for example, here in Atlanta, we have um, some of our, what I would call our underserved communities where there's no grocery store or they have to drive or or catch an Uber or they have to get on a bus. They have to go, um, you know, they have to go a distance before they can find a grocery store. Um, I think a lot of it is um, really a question of safety. And so that may be an odd term to use, but when people think about um, a safe neighborhood, a part of that is the ability to have um, access to safe and affordable food. And so if people are looking at what's on their kitchen tables um, and they're not able to access this food um, quickly and at a price that works for them, then that's a, a question of safety because they aren't being provided um, a safe neighborhood. Um, but, however, um, in a lot of these circumstances, um, I think it's important to recognize that people in underserved communities are still making strong food histories and creating really strong food memories, um, even under, in some cases, uh, really dire circumstances. And so one thing um, Ashanti Reese in her new book pushes back against is this idea that um, some of these areas are absent of food uh, because they have 
they have food memories, and more importantly, people in these communities often um, have really creative ways um, to make sure that themselves and their communities are being fed, even though the systems are um, often against them. And an example of some of these systems are the lack of available um, grocery stores or green space. Yeah, and I think just to add to that, I mean, I agree with everything Priscilla just said. I think to add to that is that it's not surprising that these same communities that are experiencing environmental injustices are also experiencing food insecurities. And so when we take that step back and look at the systems and not look at the individuals, but look at the systems that are creating these places, that, you know, as a, as a whole society, we really need to think about what systems are we creating and allowing to, to persist that, you know, create these spaces where it's not, it's a, that people have to, to fight. And I love that word that Priscilla used of safety to fight for that safety, to, you know, have a meal and put that meal on the table and separating that from the individual experience. Cause there's a, I feel like there's a lot of blame placed on the individuals who are living in these places. And that's, I think, for me, it's more of a systemic, a, a bigger picture problem that we are creating these places and these individuals are doing what they can to create these food memories and these foodscapes in the places they can, but without the resources to do it and as they can in other places. I mean, I think some of it, which we've kind of touched on, is, um, is I guess, from a systems level history and the different experiences that racialized groups have had with food. Um, that still affect um, how we see food now and our experiences with food. And so I think for me and Ellen, we bring that both to our work, whether it be from a food justice or an environmental justice perspective, that different groups have just experienced um, food differently in this country from a systems level. And so some groups, um, and me being Black, have just been systematically denied access to food. Um, through many historical perspectives, and that still influences um, culture today. Um, I think, um, and Ellen can correct me if I'm wrong, um, one of the things that we might be struggling with a bit um, is how how we define culture, because it's, it's such a fluid concept for us, and I think we want to make sure that we don't um, homogenize different groups or say that all Black people feel this way or all white people feel this way based on um, having based on the word culture. And so I think, at least for me, that's one of the things I struggle with, um, the word culture itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would uh, agree with that. I think as I'm thinking about both clearly in your question, but also Priscilla, the way you responded about that role of history is that there's, and an, an the fluidity of culture um, is that there is these systemic broader processes, but how each person chooses to participate them in them varies so much. And that while we're all walking within these, these, these kind of broad structural processes, we each have our own agency and our own choices about how we choose to um, kind of to, to participate in these broader systems. And so, and sometimes we don't have choices because sometimes society puts things onto us that we can't shed. But I think particularly around the idea of food and 
and, and pr- food both in the, you know, kind of separating that idea of food in the private sphere versus the public sphere and how we engage and think about food differently in different places and how our relationship to food. And I think about people who, you know, there's people who are food insecure, but then there's also people who struggle with food, uh, you know, around, um, you know, different disorders around food. And so like, it's such a complicated relationship because it's so embedded with both the individual, but then the structural and it's, it's converging and how each person thinks about food and, and engages with food has this history and has this structural process, but what parts we engage with depends on kind of both the places we are, but also what we choose to think about in the moment. Okay. All right. So what, okay. So now let's, let's talk for a moment about some solutions. And by that, I mean, uh, we we've talked about the different factors that that come into play uh and and we and we need to make sure that we uh define uh that we effectively define culture um so that's the first that's the first thing i think you know from a solution standpoint we could do but now if we want to let's just say if we if we had an opportunity to to resolve uh, just one just just one uh systemic impact of uh, uh, on food and culture, what would that one and and uh, what would that one thing be? For me, I mean, what I always tell my students is that if I actually had the solutions, that I wouldn't be a professor, I'd be out saving the world. Right? Um, because I actually don't. I mean, it's such an important question, but I don't have an answer for it. And I think right. admitting in moments when you don't know the answer is just as important as as you know, kind of giving answers in other places, because I think that that, and particularly as a white academic, I say that because there's so many amazing people who are on the ground, who are fighting these fights every day. And I don't, I think they are the ones that are, you know, kind of coming up with the the solutions. Um, And I don't want to discredit their work by claiming that I have any solutions. So I'm not trying to evade the question, but for me, it's right. a really hard question to answer because I'm not sure it has an answer because I don't know if we've figured it out. And I, I mean, right. I go back to, um, I think we need to figure out, and I, this is not something I have a solution to, but I think we need to figure out how to dismantle the racist systems, which create these inequities in well. our society. Well, and so that's that's for me kind of like, you know, that's or the class structures, all these these structures which have created these inequalities. That's where I think we need to work. But mm-hmm. I think that that's a I don't have a I don't know the solution to that. But I think that's where the work needs to be done. Well, I certainly don't want to imply that. Well, I don't I don't think that there's just one one solution at all. I think that because we, there's so many different factors. If there's not just one, there's not one, you know, just it's like trying to take a pill, one pill to cure cancer. No, I don't think that 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 there is a solution. But I, but from your from your standpoint, I, I, I think to look at some of the systems uh, and th- th- that's a good start to look at some of the systems that are in place that are working against uh, that are working against food security. I think that's that's one step towards. 
uh, solving a, a greater problem. Dr. McKetchen, do you have anything um, that, that you wanted to add? Um, so I would agree with um, Ellen about looking at the systems and also looking at uh, within these systems how individuals and communities have constantly and historically fought back against some of the oppression that's always been in the system. And it doesn't mean that they beat the system by any stretch of the imagination because we wouldn't be talking about it. But it does mean that um, within this oppression, communities and individuals have always thought of creative ways. Um, One thing that I try to do in my work, and I know uh, Monica White often says the same thing, is that historically communities of color um, have always formed groups um, or formed um, different cooperatives to fight back against some of these broader systems. And again, it doesn't mean that they beat the systems, but it does mean that um, that they've fought back against them. And something else I would say, um, and some of this comes from my reading of Ellen's work, is that we have to engage in policy. And so some people would say that we have to totally, you know, transform the system or like basically start over. And I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I think it's important that we engage with um, policy and the political process um, in transforming um, some of these systems. Agreed. Agreed. Absolutely. Absolutely. So looking at the systems and also um, there's a lot of talk um, um, and I've heard Dr. Reese, Ashante Reese and Dr. Monica White allude to this about um, self-reliance, that, that whole self-reliance piece. And that part, um, that, that, that kind of pops in my mind when we talk about what you were saying, Dr. McKetchen, about coming together as community uh, and, and really uh, uh, being proactive as a community to, um, you know, to pull your resources together and develop a, uh, a solution. That's now that's, that's, that's another step too. Again, it's not, like you say, it's not eliminating the problem, but it is being proactive and doing something, uh, you know, to, to minimize the impact of it. I am so um, grateful for the two of you and, and what you're doing and the contributions that, that you are making. Again, I said earlier that your work is actually changing the landscape of, of food and culture. Um, I encourage you to continue on. I will certainly be looking for um, part two from your first work. And on behalf of our listeners, I want to thank you for sharing the gift of your perspectives. Now, the sister's perspective assumes the responsibility of giving a viewpoint reflective of the African-American church on topics such as these. Culture and its impact on positionality varies from context to context. And Dr. McKetchen pointed out the fluidity of culture and cautioned that we should exercise care when defining it accordingly. What is extremely fascinating is this notion of an intersection between positionality culture, food, and the systems regulating each, both individually and collectively. Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw defines these factors as part of the definition of intersectionality, most specifically as race, sexual orientation, age, religion, creed, and gender. It is recent experiences with geographers that have revealed yet uh, these additional factors of space and positionality. 
There are many biblical examples as well of this relationship that illustrate uh, how these intersect. For example, in the book of Ruth, it was actually Ruth's change in cultural positionality by becoming a widow that led to Boaz's discovery of her in the grain field. And readers go on to witness yet another change in positionality over a mealtime. It was Jesus' transformation of water into wine that aided in affirming his divinity and his positionality. In biblical culture, there are many systems standing at the root of clashes between religious institutions, social, political, and cultural overlaps. And in each situation, we can find evidence of the patriarchal strongholds that created social disparities, especially with regard to gender. This notion only reinforces the obligation that the church should assume in impacting society and the constructs that hold people, communities, and countries in the bondage that we see today, economically, politically, culturally. Thank you all for listening. A special thanks to Kisa Public Radio. And as we leave you, please remember those famous words from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, that whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Goodbye, everyone. Sister's Perspectives is a forum where individuals come to express their viewpoint, their stance, their angle on issues relative to topics of concern to the community globally. Each week, our co-host and featured guests will present a perspective through a unique lens. The Sister's Perspective gives the world a frame of reference, an ear, a voice on politics, public policy, advocacy, finance, economics, health. The Sisters Perspective is a roundtable on hot topics with dialogue on issues in the news. It's a way of looking at controversial subjects, approaches, and outlooks. So come check us out and give us your perspective.